Here we go. Classic time. Mm-hmm. Just going back through our old stuff. The next one on our list was about when to harvest. Perennial classic. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves it. Same questions over and over and over again. Yeah. Here's a, here's a picture of one hop off one vine in my field. Should I harvest mm-hmm. now? Should I harvest it? Um. Yeah. What What does Reddit say? Uh <laughs> With all those geniuses that are down there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how how nobody likes the answers we give them. Well, it depends. It's like the most annoying thing in the world. Well, even, and then even then, it, it, when you tell them what the techniques are, they're like, oh, that's too hard. Isn't there an easier way? <laughs> no. Isn't there a meter or something I can buy? Yes. You can do whatever you want. Oh, another one of your, your classic lines. Uh-huh. Yep. Ugh. So... But I would highly suggest that you don't, because that's dumb. Yes. Yes. It's yep. the whole the whole wives' tales of, you know, I mean, there's just, they just go on and on and on of, they're supposed to look like this, they're supposed to smell like this, they're supposed to have this shape, they're supposed to feel like this, they're supposed to blah, blah, blah. It's after the, you, you harvest after the first quarter moon of the third week <laughs> of 15 days before Samhain. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. No. Yeah, it's dumb. Yeah, so so that was this one, and and really, I mean, listening through, it, not as we say over and over again, these are only a couple of years old. Nothing has changed. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we could go back and record a whole other episode on when to harvest, but newsflash, it's gonna be the same thing. <laughs> Maybe they just want to hear our witty repartee. James, we are slightly below 3,000 total downloads. Nice. Just a hair. Nice. Just a hair. I like that. Mm-hmm. We'll, mm-hmm. See how, Another... we'll see how that number drops off after we drop our My Brewer Rant podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At this point, once this goes live, people should have heard that, so no one may be listening anymore. Oh, that's true. Yep. Nice. Oh, my mom said I'd achieve great things. <laughs> I was at a brewery yesterday and Shocker. telling people, well, yeah, I know, amazing. <laughs> I needed something to do for an hour. It's, I, uh-huh. I have this horrible habit now. If the kids need to be somewhere and it's for under 90 minutes, I don't consider that enough time to go home and then go back again, so I just head over to the brewery in the middle of town. However you have to justify it, I, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a problem. But I, I was telling folks about the, at that you know, as of today, upcoming brewery rant which again listeners who are still remaining both of you you've heard already and as i'm telling them this i'm drinking a passion fruit wheat beer Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. i i understand the irony that's fine again nothing wrong with your passion fruit wheat beer that's okay actually kona brewing company makes a lovely uh wheat what lilikoi is is passion fruit and uh, it's quite it's quite nice kona makes some good stuff some very good stuff they have they have a they used to anyway have a coconut porter which i think was the first thing i tried of theirs yeah all which, was it stateside here yes yeah that's all brewed out in portland <clears throat> um but the the brewery in in kona kailua kona in the big island hawaii uh is fantastic 
uh, it's a restaurant. They do pizza and stuff, but they also do, a, you know, it's more like your traditional brew pub. And uh, their Lilikoi, their Lilikoi wheat is really nice. Huh. If it's if it's uh, if it's in Hawaii and they serve pizza, does everything have to have pineapple on it? Because I couldn't handle. I think that. it's a state mandate, but you know they they buck the oh. trends. You know they're brewers, so they're like, ha, we're not putting pineapple on our pizza. Okay, they they just earned some extra bonus points from me then, because that's that's plain gross. So anyway, almost three thousand downloads. Very excited about that. Please uh, tell your friends. Uh, get, let's get some more uh, some more numbers up there for us. It makes us happy and proud to be providing this information when we see those numbers go up. We're we're slaves to social media like anyone else. We like seeing the likes. But in all seriousness, reviews on um, iTunes and Google Play and all that actually really help to spread the word so uh please give us a couple of stars there or actually a couple stars would suck give us five stars five stars five stars would be great (laughs) yes yes much appreciated come on lithuania you owe us (laughs) oh yes we know we've got friends in lithuania now in estonia and all over the place so let's let's get on it here we we need to maybe spend an entire episode saying the word hops in 87 different languages just just for fun just for sound bites so I guess we should talk about something relevant instead of babbling on about social media. I've okay. kind of covered that. Yep. Okay. How about harvest? Is it time? Ooh. Boy, we're right on the cusp. Well, and some of our friends in in uh, in further south in the states have already started harvest. So yeah, it is absolutely time. All right, buckle your seatbelts, people. Here we go. Let's think about this. So we've got listeners who are at all sorts of scales here. So why don't we talk about sort of the opportunities for harvest uh like hand harvesting versus small machine harvesting versus large machine harvesting because that's going to i think be indicative of the people's scale right so mm-hmm. let's talk about that and sort of the compare and contrast uh, and, okay. and then we can talk maybe about you know how you figure out when it's time and something i've never seen really anybody talk about which is the difference between the technical correct time to harvest and the opportune time to harvest they're two different things usually yep so when it comes to hand harvesting really the only thing you need is a ladder and some aleve i think (laughs) yep so yeah you're you're literally pulling cones off of sidearms and the more hands you have, many hands make light work. It is just going for it and, and hand stripping those cones off of those sidearms. What we found seems like a lifetime ago, we did a study looking at the efficiency of hand harvesting on, let's call it a very small commercial basis. So you've got plants that are yielding like a pound to a pound and a half dry, so a commercial yield, and you're going to strip these buggers by hand. We found was that it takes a single person 45 minutes to an hour to hand pick one plant. So, you know, you could have two strings on that, and that's fine, but, I mean, that's that's a, quite the commitment. And you figure that you've got, I don't know, uh, a thousand crowns to the acre, let's just say. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> and, and you start doing the math and, and backing into it, saying... I've got X amount of time to get this variety off. You'll figure out pretty quickly either how long your days are and how many hands you're going to have. So what we found was that the point of diminishing returns for hand harvesting was 
typically about two-thirds to three-quarters of a single plant. And what I mean by that is by the time you you just want to be done with that vine and move on to the next one because it's like a sense of accomplishment. As people got close to sort of the end of that particular vine they were working on, they got sloppy. The yield that was in the lower quarter to lower third of that twine was not worth the effort that it was costing you. And let's let's be clear here in terms of the... I'm picturing this in my mind, and I want to make sure folks understand, at least when I hand harvested on the farm we were pulling we were decapitating we were pulling the vines down so you had the ability to traverse the vine and start with the the denser areas first and to your point kind of slack off where things aren't dense that's as opposed to actually leaving your vines up and having to climb fair yep that's very fair uh so yes i am talking about decapitation harvesting where you're literally cutting the plant out of the field and for a commercial yield that, that I'm talking about, that's really your only option. You would be on a ladder for hours. It would probably, I would say, double to triple uh, the amount of time it would take you to hand harvest a plant if you left it standing. Some people yeah. will drop the plant. They'll untie it, they'll drop the plant, and then they'll tie it back up. And the idea here is that, well, the plant's going to have all this extra time to photosynthesize. You know, you're going to have six to eight weeks potentially, of uh, photosynthetic time before that plant wants to go dormant. That's all mathematically fine and dandy, but you can't stop caring for that plant from a disease and insect point of view after you harvest it. It's like, oh, harvest is done, my plants are up, I'm going to let them go dormant, but are you caring for them still? Usually not. I am a proponent of just cutting them out of the field and taking them someplace, stretching them out, you know, in a barn, get them out of the sun while you're doing it because they'll wilt, you know, much uh, more slowly that way and and harvest that way. Otherwise, you're just going to be killing yourself. You're not likely going to take care of your plants post-harvest anyway. So, And what, if anything, is the, is the value of those stripped binds afterwards from a, I mean, from a market value, there, there really isn't anything, but is there any value from a mulching and putting back into the soil perspective we talk about all the nutrient leaching that goes on are there nutrients there that would benefit oh absolutely let's put some caveats on this number one the plant matter leaves binds and whatnot are composted before we spread them back on the field composting proper composting which we can talk about maybe off season is very important to do it correctly to kill off pathogens and insects and all that kind of stuff before you spread it back on your field. Of course, if you had a pristine field, it wouldn't matter. You could just, you know, go and toss the leaves back on there and, you know, there you go. But you can gain back like up to half of the potassium you put on in that season by putting the leaves back on the field. So it's no joke. I mean, it's, it can contribute considerably, but it can also be a, a, a bad thing if you've got a lot of disease, you've got a lot of insects, aphids, mites, things like that, that you're just going to be putting that leaf litter back on the field without composting it and having killed those insects. You're just going to create a problem over problem next year. So I would avoid that. But but you brought up an interesting point about the binds. Um, we have made ourselves like uh, wreaths out of binds, out of old binds once they've been stripped. Wow. While they're still pliable and green, you wrap them around a form and sort of weave them and then you let them dry and then boom, you've got you've got something to sell. And like some of them we're selling for 
50, 60 bucks a pop. Wow. The, the other thing we would do is we would take those old binds and we would work with our artist community and they would uh, come out and get them and take them and, and work them into their artwork, whether they were weaving with it or, you know, building something with it. And, you know, we get some props out of it. You know, you go to an art, art show, say, hey, this is, you know, waste material. So that was kind of fun. But other than that, there isn't a whole lot of use for the bind itself. Interesting. I, I love the artistic bent there and being able to do do just something else with that material. That that's great. And the issue there is, is time, right? So you've got yep. you've just stripped these binds and you really got to get them while they're still pliable and get them wrapped around these forms. So it's like you you know if you really want to do it right, you have a, a small secondary crew who isn't harvesting, but they're using those binds, wrapping them around your forms and. Since, since at that point, of course, your dryer is ready to go and it's working flawlessly. Of course, absolutely, it. yep, mm-hmm. totally. Now, I know we spoke about this a bit when we talked about pre-harvest logistics, but just to reiterate, since we're talking about the binds, if you decapitation harvest and you're then bring those binds over somewhere to strip them, whether it's by hand or, or via a harvester, they are heavy. Mm, they are. So um, we've talked before about layout and all that, but this is why we say... You want to be able to drive a truck between your rows because you got to put the binds somewhere. You're not going to decapitate five or six binds and just drag them back to the barn yourself. It's unpleasant. Very unpleasant. And so you, have have a plan. You will get so much hop rash on your arms and face and neck, and you look like you got drugged behind a truck. So let's let's just wrap up the, the hand harvesting first before we move on. But I mean that moving binds is is a is no small feat and you should at least consider a pickup truck to put binds in to haul them around to get them where you're going how you load those binds in that truck for hand harvesting really doesn't matter but how you the carry you take in loading binds onto a wagon or a truck if you're mechanically harvesting is the difference between being efficient and not being able to get your crop off so we'll talk about that in a minute but just keep in mind that, you know, for a mature, what we would consider a mature commercial yield, you're looking at 45 minutes to an hour per person, per plant to hand harvest. And if you've got five days on average uh, to get that crop off, that particular variety off, do the math. And that will tell you sort of what you've got to work into. Now, granted, if you've just got spindly plants and you just want to be in this for yucks and have people over and drink beer and eat barbecue then knock yourself out but for those of us trying to do this commercially honestly hand harvesting is not a viable long-term option it can be a punishment for someone that's not carrying their weight it can be very much a punishment it usually is after about 20 minutes it's awful so yeah uh been there done that we hand harvested you know an acre and it was arduous at the very best of times uh, I don't advise it. Shortly after that, we had invented and built a small-scale mechanical harvester. And I recall, hand, you know, something else about hand harvesting, and it's, it's the little things that make all the difference. It's summer. It's hot. If you are going to be taking all of your binds, you know, if it's not inside, but to some central location in your yard, and you have folks set up with bins to separate the material, you need a tent, you need shade, you need water. Uh, this is this is hard, hard work. You're not going to take all your binds and just have some folks sitting around in a field at some tables maybe 
without the appropriate stuff to make sure they're well cared for. So there, there are logistics to this that are important. Yep. And you'll want to feed them. You'll want to water them. You'll want to, you know, make sure they're happy because you want them to come back because to your point, this does suck. You know, people that want to come and help for free per our previous episode, you know, they want to do it on their time. And if you are under the gun, you know, you have to stick to a schedule. You're going to have this mismatch in expectations, and that can be problematic. So, I, yeah, that's hand harvesting. I recommend trying it just once. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that will tell you, <laughs> give you that much more appreciation for mechanical harvesting. It so. becomes a story to tell around the campfire. Mm-hmm. But making that jump to small-scale mechanical harvesting is... The first thing people think is that, oh my God, this is going to be so much easier. I can spend money to buy a piece of equipment that is that I don't have to worry about. But yeah, there's a big easy there's a big easy button in the side. It's a big easy yeah. There you go. It's a big easy button. Wrong, 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 wrong. It's a whole nother world of of issues. Certainly in the small scale, and and having been, I think, the first company out there with a very very small scale harvester we found out very quickly that people's expectations do not match the real world in most cases yep and part of that gets back to the mechanical ability piece that we've talked about and we've discussed the fact that you're very much a how to how do things work kind of person in that maker space and mm-hmm. that it, it's important to you to just know how things are doing what they're doing but plenty of folks want the easy button you know i've got a right. lot of machines in my house and i don't care how they work i just want to push the button and get my damn toast out of it and be done. Right. Uh, but there is, just like we've spoken about with, with oasts and drying, you need to know how these things work because they will break. They absolutely will break and they will guaranteed break at the most inopportune time. So yeah, any harvester of any scale, you're going to need to have good mechanical aptitude. And so many people would come to our classes or even we had a couple of charter growers that they were not mechanically inclined at all and they just thought they were going to spend their way into success and well i've got a guy who's a mechanic who will come over and fix the harvester after work if it breaks okay well what happens if it breaks at 9 30 in the morning well it's all right we'll just you know get to it tomorrow oh okay and when your mechanic guy doesn't feel like coming over after work because he's just worked 12 14 hours then what or he comes over and says, oh, you need this, this, and this part. We're going to have to order them. Exactly. Well, then you say, well, just go down to the farm and fleet and get it. Well, no, you can't because they're metric. Oh, and they're custom. So those aspects of mechanical harvest cannot be understated, let's put it that way. And there are certainly designs out there for purchase. And as you mentioned, I mean, we, we built several over the years with various degrees of, of success. Uh, the hardest part of that, you know, in addition to running a farm and running an equipment company was, to your point, folks that are not mechanical saying, hey, how come it doesn't do exactly this? Well, one, because you didn't read the instructions. <laughs> but but two, because you need to be able to bend and twist with things. Right. Um, you need to be able to be functional um, and work with this, this equipment. But you see a lot of designs out there on the message boards and the Facebook groups and people putting together their own ways of stripping binds there's a there are a lot of ways to do it there are a lot of ways to botch it up but it doesn't mean there's only one right way to do it either i i agree with that wholeheartedly and maybe we do that maybe in later in the year we'll we'll have an episode on so you want to make build your own harvester because there are a few key attributes that will lead to success uh if you 
if you incorporate them. I can't wait to do that one because I think the, the Instagram picture post for it would just be someone covered in blood. <laughs> a night of the living dead shot night of the living dead shot correct yeah that that will happen I mean, there's a reason why my wife called our first one mangler jr so because it was it was pretty brutal regardless of what tools you're using small scale or or moderate to large scale hop for harvest it's really about buying management and how you get your crop out of the field and to the harvester and it's it's like a you're setting a cadence and the the cadence is the harvest activity proper so how how fast do plants move through that harvester what are the bottlenecks there because you're always trying to make that more and more efficient one thing that so many people neglect when they're dealing with mechanical harvesting is what do you do with all of the garbage and the first thing that generally happens is people Say, well, we'll just, you know, shovel it out of the way or what have you. Yeah, that lasts about an hour because you quickly realize that most of the biomass of that plant is garbage. It's just, it piles up so fast. It's it's one person's job just to, to move the stuff. So that's usually the first, <laughs> first thing people fix and, and add on to their system in the off season or the following year is some sort of way to move that leaves and bind debris and stuff out of the way. And that's exactly what your volunteers want. If you're working with volunteers is you're on garbage duty. You're just hauling binds back and forth. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's just, that's no better way to guarantee that they won't come back. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to touch the pretty hop flowers. Setting that cadence with the harvester is super important. I don't know how best to explain this. So let's, let me just sort of talk through the picture I have in my head of our process. So you've got somebody feeding hop binds into a machine. And the feed rate determines basically how good of a, of a pick you get. And every variety can be different. Every variety is a little bit too aggressive. I say families, variety families can be a bit different. You know, a Chinook picks differently than a cascade than a tetanager so those rates harvest rates change so you so if that's changing everything downstream has to change as well to match because what you don't want to have happen is too many people in the field cutting binds and then they come and they dump them and then you can't get to them for an hour as they wilt those flowers become less and less harvestable so what that means is you're going to run through your machine they've lost moisture they're going to shatter into bracts and stuff like that and nothing's going to come out the back end so it's like you've got to time the drop off of those plants so that they can be run through in a reasonable amount of time i would say you know less than 20 minutes or you're going to have issues with yield loss people say oh man my hops look great I've got all these flowers, but man, my yield and one, my dryer was awful. I don't know what's going on. And the, you, you look in their garbage pile and it just looks like confetti. It's like, well, you had way too much shatter. I've seen 50% yield loss due to cone shatter in a harvester. Wow. And of course, it's not just yield loss. All of that shatter going on during the picking process creates more debris in your machine, which adds to the potential for jams and breakdowns and whatnot. So it all kind of compounds upon itself. Yep. Getting those plants out of the field at the right cadence is really important. 
like you said earlier about the harvesters, the same thing is with getting plants out of the field. How do you do it? What's the best way? Everybody's a bit different, and we've done it a half a dozen different ways. But what it boils down to is the plant being cut at the bottom near the soil surface, I'd say with maybe about six inches above the soil surface, then the plant being cut at the top wire, and then that plant, that vine or twine being draped onto some sort of a cart or a flatbed or something of that nature. What you don't want to do is just let them drop into a pickup truck and then you've got a big snarled mess when you drop it off at the at the harvester because that's going to very quickly wreck your harvest efficiency if that person feeding the equipment has to untangle everything. So how those binds are laid out and which direction they're laid out is very important. For instance, if you're running a wolf harvester, you want to feed that bind into the machine butt end first. So if you stack the binds incorrectly on your wagon and drop them off, now the end that you need to feed in the machine is the one that's furthest away from you. <laughs> I, I laugh. I laugh because it's so easy to get wrong. Oh, it is. And so you're if you've got pickup hooks that are dragging your your plants right into the the harvester, you've got a pickup block every ten feet or so, and you're missing every other one. Your, buy, your your Wolf 140 is now a Wolf 70 because you're only hitting every other pickup block. Just that one simple thing, you know, dropping your plants backwards at the at the harvest harvester site totally destroyed your efficiency. And these are the things you learn the hard way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what, what else did we do? What else can we talk about there? I would usually have one person cutting up top, one person cutting at the bottom, and two to three people loading binds onto a trailer. And this was for a Wolf 140 scale, 140, 170, so 140 to 170 pieces of twine per hour. They could pretty much keep up with our harvest rate. And so that's all they did all day long was go out, cut, drop, go out, cut, drop, and repeat the next day. So we'd rotate the crews, but that was a, a pretty good rate. So that means right there I had five people in the field. I had one person running the wolf in terms of feeding the binds in. I had usually one person who was a floater. They'd, they'd go around make sure that the there wasn't too much leaf debris and whatnot and the hops coming out. They'd be the ones managing the garbage uh, conveyor that was taking the leaf and stem debris out into a wagon. And then you had one person who was sort of the harvest coordinator that was either me or or my field supervisor we were also the ones that fixed stuff when it broke so there's five in the field six seven at least eight of us that was required for you know to run that system efficiently and you think about all the the ta if you think at a very high level and you've never done this before about all the tasks that need to be done and it's just okay get the binds down get them over to the harvester run them through the harvester it sounds like a lot less people than that, but to your point of all the things that get in the way, the, the debris being such a, a big elephant in the room, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, it takes so much more, so many more hands on deck than it sounds like when you just talk about the simple process of getting from point A to point B. Yep, and I would think too that the, one of the things that <clears throat> I had to get over relatively quickly was trying to solve all of these bottlenecks mechanically that snowballs on you very quickly if something breaks it brings the whole system to a screeching halt so i really very quickly 
changed gears and got away from thinking of how to solve things mechanically to how to better streamline a, a simpler harvest operation. Sure. And if that simplicity meant a, a body doing something instead of a machine, that's what you do. That's that's what you do. You'd, you'd like to think that, well, machines, you know, you get them running and they don't cost you anything. <laughs> they break. And when they break, everything stops. So even if you have the worst employee or person doing a job, they're at least doing something. You still have forward momentum. But a machine, to your point, Greg, if you don't have the mechanical aptitude to immediately address mechanical issues, it's a total wrench in the works. Don't rely on machinery to fix your efficiency issues. Yep. And if you are the anal retentive sort like I am, that machine breaks, and rather than taking... 10 minutes to decide this is not fixable, we're going manual. I know I would spend two hours banging my head against the wall going, oh, I, I've almost got it. We need a, and the time is just flying by. That's experience, though, I think, mm-hmm. to know to know when to, you know, as you say, fish or cut bait. And we would typically have it to the point where I, I wouldn't even bother, on our scale, hand harvesting. It just was not an option. If you had a significant malfunction, and for us a significant malfunction would be the machine is down for a day. So now I've lost a day of harvest. And I had a machine shop in the barn. And people were like, wow, you have a mill and a lathe and all that stuff? I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Because guess what? When you need it, you need it now. There's no running down to the farm shop and and getting what you need. I mean, sometimes there is, but not always. Sometimes you got to make stuff. We had a a main uh, sprocket actually drove the the bind chain that that drug the hops through the machine that sprocket it was cast iron it was 40 some years old split in half over uh, the friday before labor day weekend and it's it's metric it's a metric shaft size it's a metric sprocket chain so what are you going to do well we were done for that day but i called an old machinist friend of mine who was retired and i'm like can you come look at this because i don't Give me your opinion on what we should do. And he came and looked at it. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we, we chatted a little bit, had a beer over it. And uh, this was Friday evening. And the next morning I went to the farm because that's what you do as a farmer. And there's a box sitting in front of the harvester door. And I opened it up and it's a hand machined solid aluminum sprocket that he went home and made on his drill press that night. Wow. Cause, and I was like, or Jeff, what the hell? Thank you, but you didn't have to do that. It's like, yeah, my wife and daughter were away for the weekend. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> wow. And so, boom, we were back up and running, and I called the crew in, yep, on Saturday and Sunday and Monday to catch up over the holiday weekend because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. But in that scenario, it was that was how I solved that issue. And if I didn't have those connections, I would have been completely screwed. So, so the moral of the story there is make friends. Make friends with old machinists. <laughs> so, so going back a few minutes, when you started down the path of, you know, one of the things you learned was not to assume a machine is the answer to everything and be willing to go manual when you have to. I thought what was going to come out of your mouth was one of the things I learned early on was even though you, you know, you, the the owner, the, the manager of the farm is the lead supervisor, learn very quickly that you can't do every task and make sure that your folks at their various stations know what to do, but that you're given the autonomy to go ahead and do it. 
because I think that's another way you can slow down dramatically in, in farming or any other way of life, not to trust the folks around you and not to lay it all on yourself and just, oh, just get out of the way. I'll do it myself. Yeah, you got to really get over that in a, very, very quickly. That's that's management skills. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that, that we haven't even approached yet. You've got to trust but verify. Yes. So put the right people in the right positions. And yeah, I understand that so-and-so may want to run the harvester, but there ain't no way in hell it's happening. <laughs> Because, yeah, right? You can say Dan. It's okay. They know who he is. <laughs> no, I even trusted Dan to do this. And <laughs> we've had some folks work at the farm. I'm just like, ooh, you're going to kill yourself shaving one morning, buddy. So, so that idea of making sure you have the right people in the right place and then following up to make sure that they are engaged and doing what they need to do instead of just, you know, duffing it and, and loafing, really just stepping up when you come around. That's that's a big deal. Yep, especially because in in many of these cases you're you're dealing with hourly labor. They're getting paid for as long as they're there. The they're not getting paid on throughput and yield. So it was a few years ago. A friend of mine called me. He's got a big operation. He's got two Wolf two twenty harvesters back to back. He's like, can you can you come over? Our harvest was done. He was quite a bit further north than us. So I'm like, yeah, well, I'll go up. So made the trek up north. And he's just like, I don't know. I think I need a third harvester. I'm like, dude, you only got 10 acres. What are you talking about? Third harvester. <laughs> uh, he's like, well, I want to, you know, be at 40 acres. And and it's just weird just not making the time. It's like these Wolf 220s are not doing 220 pieces of twine an hour. Something's wrong. So, you know, I start looking over the equipment with him and, and his mechanic. And there are a few tweaks we made. But then he goes out in the field to, to keep tabs on his... Uh, bind cutters and i start watching the two guys that are feeding binds into the equipment and as soon as he left they went from hitting every bind hook to hitting every third or fourth bind hook <laughs> yeah his wolf 220 is now a wolf 70 and i came back you know when he came back and we were having beers at the end of the day and i said here's the numbers that i found he's like what's going on i said the two you know organ donors you have feeding binds into the machine are absolutely duffing it as soon as you leave, they just really quit working. Wow. You immediately make that change. I even brought up my farm manager at the time, and she showed him. She was half their age in some cases and was like whipping binds around and hitting every bind hook and blah, blah, blah. And I remember this one guy, he was probably about her same age, mid-20s. He's like, oh, man, that looks like a lot of work. <laughs> so I was like, if Hannah can hit every single pick up bind and whip those binds around and i was like yeah you get a core workout that's the way it were that's how it needs to go and yes she was doing it hitting every you know she did it for an hour and she was hitting every bind hook and you know lo and behold she was running around that 200 pieces of twine an hour like that's how you do it and all of a sudden the dryers are filling up and he's like whoa we gotta switch to the other dryer that's how you do it mm-hmm. yep trust but verify wow mm-hmm so I, there's so much of that we could go into, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't want to get too far off topic of, I guess we're not getting off topic, but I, I want to make sure we touch on the when to harvest. Yes. Yes. So that that's probably the most common question. Um, you see it on the Facebook pages, the you know questions we get of, here's what my cones look like. Are they ready? Is it time? How do I know when it's time to harvest? Well, you harvest when it's time. That's a, a very aggravating answer. <laughs> 
Well, that's a variation on the it depends answer. Yeah, yeah, I was just expecting that to come. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what do you think? What do I think? I know, you ha- I know you have an angle on this topic of when to harvest. Like I said earlier, it was there's two different answers there. There's the physiological answer of when is a cone at its peak ripeness and ready to harvest. And then there's the, the real-life answer. Time to harvest is when you can get the harvest done. Yeah, there's the when you can get it done and the when... I mean, when nature tells you it's ready or it's not ready, sometimes you sometimes that doesn't go along with your uh, your real life situation. So we've we've spoken briefly about the fact that if there are hints of disease coming or you know or other reasons or just from a staging perspective where you can't harvest everything at once and you must stage in order for your drying and harvesting equipment to to at, even at peak efficiency get done, you need them to get done. Um, you'll need to make some adjustments based on that the physiological answer is hops are at their peak quote ripeness when they start to lose water moisture content as they mature so they go into this phase called senescence and that's basically cell death the plant is dying it's getting ready to go dormant and so the hop cone will go from the low 80s percent moisture content and drop into the 70s and what we found, no matter what variety you're harvesting, is that 73 to 75% moisture content is the optimum harvest range. And a lot of that has to do with having enough moisture in the cone so that when you run it through a mechanical harvester, it doesn't just explode and shatter. So if you're overripe, if, you've, if you're below 72% moisture content, I just see yields plummet when you mechanically harvest because the cones just disintegrate. And, you know, we've, we talked about this on a very early podcast. I think it was the one we called a little bit dead on the inside. And the, the, the whole <laughs> yeah. idea of, yeah, um, they are dying a bit when you initially harvest. That's, they, they sort of come over the hump to health. And when things start heading downhill, that's, that's the time to do it. That's the optimum time from a cone chemistry standpoint. Your aroma is not going to get any better if you leave them hang up there. Now, of course, it's not like you're going to walk up to your hops and go, hmm, are you feeling sad today? Is it time? Is it, is it time to uh, pull you down? I mean, how, how do you see that this is happening? Well, how do you know you're going into cell death is that you measure the moisture content. You're taking samples and you're measuring it. How are you measuring it? Well, remember in the Dan episode when we talked about microwave drying and the balance and weighing all that, you're looking at dry weight minus wet weight. So you mean I have to go out in my field and take samples and measure it? Uh, yeah, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. The actual mathematical formula is in a haiku on our Instagram account. It is. See if you can find it. Th- this concept of, well, they should feel light and papery or they're going to smell this way or the lupulin changes color. Those, None of those are signs of proper harvest timing. None of them. So you want to do this like the pros do it, then you measure the moisture content and you measure it using an aggregate sample from three different locations in the plant, you know, all the way up top in the middle and sort of head height. And that will give you an average moisture content. And when that thing says 75%, hit it. Time to go. It's not going to get any better if you leave them hang. You're not going to get any riper or more aroma if you leave them hang actually it's going to go south on you very quickly (laughs) so get them off time to go and so what happens if three of your varieties hit that 75 percent at the same time now what now you have an equipment backup problem yep you've got a staging issue 
that was part of pre-planning your yard to be to know that you can get all of those varieties off at, at the optimum time or you're going to have to start making quality concessions mm-hmm. to your point earlier the optimum time technically optimum time for harvest may not be the operationally optimum time for harvest so some varieties can you can get away with harvesting a bit earlier you know on the 78 percent moisture side but other varieties you know won't tolerate it at all certainly if you need that extra time to build the aroma profile you're looking for like alphas alpha and beta acids form far earlier than the aroma compounds so if you're after if you've got an alpha variety that's going to harvest need to harvest at the same time as an aroma variety i'd take the alpha variety a little earlier because it's really not going to impact how that hop's going to be used in brewing because the alpha's already been built and then come back for your aroma variety. So those are kinds of the concessions you have to make. Or let's say, I think we talked about late season downy mildew. What are you going to do? Do you going to, you going to risk leaving your crop hang in the hopes that it's not that bad and you get some crop, or are you going to take it early just as the symptoms are starting to show because I can't spray anything at that point and know that, well, at least I got my crop off. It's not optimum, but I still have it. And, and you have to consider the pre-harvest interval at that point that you can't treat for certain things that close to harvest. Yep. So you've got a judgment call to make there. Exactly. So it's a total juggle that you're doing. And I mean, that starts, I really start weighing it, literally standing in the field, weighing samples and scratching my chin, usually around the third week of July. Because I would have some some varieties like Tetanger that could harvest, if the season was right, could harvest as early as the last week of July. And if it didn't, that meant it was going to back up into Saz and Centennial. So what's my strategy? Every year it was that way. Yeah, yeah. And you had to make a call. And, and of course, we've said it so many times that until you experience it and you take some risks and see how they turn out, you just uh, you, you learn from experience. That's why... In the Pacific Northwest, some of these farms that have been around for multiple generations, they just know when it's time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still testing. They're still doing what you need to do. But there's a there's a generational aspect of that where the soil is what it is after all this time. The, the environment is what it is. And the people have been at it for so long that you just know these things until you get a f- at least a few years under your belt. You know, you're going to make some decisions and some of them are going to pan out. And uh, the ones that don't pan out are the ones you're really going to remember. And we're fairly famous for saying things like, well, you can't feel hops until when they're dry in the dryer. Mm-hmm. That's true. But after, you know, spending 15 years doing it, I can get pretty damn close. <laughs> I could, you know, when hops would come in for processing, people say, oh, yeah, the reported moisture content's 10.2. And I'd say, bullshit, it is. I'm like, these are at least 14 if they're not higher than that. And, oh, no, here's all my data. And then you go and I take a sample and I take it over and do the dry weight. And it turns out like 14.5%. And I just look at them. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, take them back. So same thing goes with harvest. You learn over time what that variety is going to look like and smell like. And given your time of year. But I couldn't go someplace else in the state and tell somebody when to harvest theirs because it's different. Unless I unless I use that that moisture content method, so you have to get away from gut and back to science because it's not the gut of of your experience of your farm. Mm-hmm. 
we've said it many times before you you can't even do from a from a maintenance and a and a management and a timing perspective you can't even run your farm based on what the guy down the road is doing it's also very very unique yeah all we can do is give you the the why things happen so you know how to adjust what you're doing on your site all right so where does that put us here on on i'll say phase one of harvest planning uh, hide <laughs> <laughs> no not a, not a not an option no as 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 with most things we we have these conversations and say do we just talk people out of doing this again well this is what you're this is the entire goal entire goal of your business plan is to get these hops off and for the love of everything i hope that you had considered it before it was time to do it because there's it's a logistical challenge to to get all these things balanced and you still have a smidge of time to make sure you've got all those things lined up but ultimately i think it really what it comes down to is pre-planning 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 and i think you said it, it's like failing to plan is planning to fail mm-hmm this harvest is one of those times where it's just absolutely brutal because you will find in sometimes very painfully all of the poor assumptions that you made earlier in the year. Yeah. It's, um, oh, I, I can't stress enough the planning side of things. It's just, and, and the tricky part, especially for a new grower is not knowing what to plan for. I mean, I go back to what we just talked about with all the waste material when you're harvesting. It's, it's probably not something that you consider until you're tripping over it and knowing ahead of time, you know, I got to dedicate a whole person to waste removal. What are you talking about? And designate an area to dump all this stuff and, or someone who's constantly running back and forth, just carting it off the farm. Why, why do I need a whole body to do that? Well, because that's what it is. But if, but if you've never harvested before, that's likely one of those things you're going to run right into and not, not even have thought in your wildest dreams would be an entire body report. Did we just talk people out of doing this again? Oh, oh, oh.